Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Well, welcome everyone to today's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm really looking forward to having a chat today with Dr. Tom Tran. Um, Tom, I might get you to start by introducing yourself or telling us a bit about yourself and the work that you do as a paediatrician at Peds in a Pod. Yep, so obviously I'm a paediatrician. I'm one of the directors and um, I founded it with my partner, Chris. Um, And I think at the time, yeah, we were just looking at kind of models of care for kids out there, mainly presenting with developmental and behaviour problems. And I think we thought that care was quite fragmented and we thought uh, it was a good opportunity to get a bunch of paediatricians and allied health practitioners together, each with their own expertise, to work together so that we can get the best outcome for the kids. So that's kind of where it came about. My wife is one of the psychologists as well, so I really valued the kind of uh, collaborative care and the input from allied health therapists. And I was a physio as well. So coming from allied health background, I, I knew that um, it was important to get lots of different information about the kids. So that's how we came about. Amazing. And I know that you have speech pathologists as well, because I, I know some of them, which has been a wonderful contact to have. So it sounds like you've got a really great multidisciplinary focus, which, you know, we don't always find in terms of you know, pediatric or childhood care, you know, often kids go off and do a little bit with somebody else and then somebody else here and part of the challenge can often be bringing it all together. Yeah. And I guess um, being a speech therapist yourself, you'll understand that Mm -hmm. communication is extremely important. And similarly, communication amongst the team of your healthcare providers is extremely important because I guess you set, you're setting goals for your kids and you want to make sure that everyone is on the same page And I think having people under the same roof, you also get a good feel of how different people work and how different people have different expertise, even in areas of speech pathology and OT and psychology. So you know the right kind of clinician that would might blend well with a certain family or a certain patient. So I think that's kind of um, yeah how it seems to work really well. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you said you've previously trained as a a physiotherapist, but then you're obviously working as a paediatrician now. What what sort of training does a paediatrician undertake to get to where you are, particularly, you know, with your interest in developmental needs? Yeah, so uh, we, we spend a lot of training, as you might understand, um, many years at uni. So most courses in uh, Australia are postgraduate. So almost all doctors these days have an undergraduate degree. And then you go to medical school for four years. Um, And following that, you then graduate as an intern. Um, And after your internship year, that's where you you start your kind of specialty training, which for paediatrics lasts a minimum of six years, but probably anywhere between six and 10 years for most people. Um, And you rotate through a whole uh, variety of different kind of specialties within paediatrics. But you do have mandatory time in community paediatrics, seeing kids with developmental um, delays and behaviour problems. Um, But you're also sent out into the country as well to do six months of rural service. Um, And and those environments are mainly outpatient work, which is what we kind of see now. Um, So after all that, um, you you get your fellowship and you become a paediatrician. But as you know, after you finish your training, um, it never ends. 
So we're often taking courses. We have to do 100 CPD points every year, um, which takes many weeks of training, ongoing training. Um, and that's where we're at. Yeah. So a really long path with ongoing uh, professional development. Hmm. And some pediatricians might end up in hospital settings or community settings. You know, I guess, what led you to go into the, the sort of work that you do? Uh, lot, lots of things. I guess um, I enjoy working with families long term. So I like seeing the kids grow up. It's really good to you know start care when they're little toddlers. And then some of those younger kids I'm seeing now are finishing high school. So it's really great to see that kind of trajectory. And um, I like to see my goal as guiding them um, and setting them up for adulthood. Um, that's kind of my role. Um, and I, I really find that kind of continuity of care really, really great. I feel I guess I felt the hospital care was a little bit fragmented because, um, you know, getting the children and getting off and seeing all different kind of specialties, even amongst the same team. Um, and you don't really get to sometimes follow them on long term. Um, so, so I really like that kind of, yeah, long term care and watching the kids grow up over years. I guess the question that comes up is around what people or what families should be looking for in a paediatrician because obviously paediatricians like speech pathologists can have different interests you know what what should families be looking for if they're seeking a paediatrician for support yeah um that's an interesting question i guess um i, I think most paediatricians i think are skilled like in terms of their knowledge base we spend a lot of time reading and studying so our kind of knowledge and clinical skills are all good um but the important thing, I think, is how you relate to the family and the child and whether you fit into their kind of model of expectation um, and how you communicate um, with them. Um, I often think of it kind of like a marriage. You know, you don't get along well with um, every single partner that you've had, but you'll find the ones um, that you kind of just click with and get along really well. Um, so unfortunately, it is a little bit of sometimes you have to try it out first to kind of see if... Um, it's going to work and if the, the both expectations from both ends meet up. Um, but I think the important things are probably um, being able to communicate well with families um, and to be able to establish rapport with the child um, and to be able to connect well with them. Mm. And I think often families feel really fearful that, you know, if they don't find the right one first, then there'll be a long yeah. wait to find the next one. And it's often that sort of challenge or tension between, you know, do I keep on persisting with somebody or do I wait, you know, try somebody different? And I think mm -hmm. that what I've learned over years is often, as you've just said, sometimes actually finding the person who works best with you as your family means that you can have this sort of enduring relationship that I find much more powerful in the long run. Yeah, that's right. And as I was saying before, I think it's a, uh, for a lot of kids, it's a very long-term relationship mm. um, and you want to be able to make it an easy journey um, rather than have that conflict. And I guess from my point of view, I, I never, I never worry if patients want a, a second or families want a second opinion. I think they deserve that um, mm. if they don't feel like they're getting their answers. Um, so from my point of view, I'm always happy to um, you know, give referrals, provide my notes, my information that I've collected over time. And just, um, you know, I really want to make sure um, it's the best thing for the family and the child. You know, my interests come second. Yeah, no, that's great to know. I think just giving that 
background, I think, will give a lot of our listeners, we have a lot of families that listen in, sort of that peace of mind that, I mean, we're all here to try and do the best we can. Um, and of course, support their their child, their loved one as much as we possibly can. So I think knowing yeah. that we're all in this together is great. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, we, yeah, as I said, I never get offended. I just think that it's, uh, it's, it happens all the time. Not, not all the time, but it, it happens. And yeah. we just accept that, I think. Yeah, yeah, I uh, recently joked about writing a piece around how to break up with your speech pathologist. You know, <laughs> how do you actually say to your speech pathologist, I want to ask for a second opinion or I want to see somebody else and it feels controversial <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, you... I think, you know, I, I, I have a certain skill set and there are certainly times where I'd say to families, oh, I'd encourage you to see somebody who's an expert or not more knowledgeable about this particular area to get yeah. that particular um, level of care that you absolutely deserve. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'd, I'd prefer families that just upfront if they want to see someone else because it helps me. I'm I'm usually happy to write a short transfer letter. Mm. Um, it's better better doing that than just getting ghosted, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's it. Yes, the uh, yeah. I've never heard back. Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess where I want to then take our conversation today <laughs> is into this realm of developmental language disorder, and we know that. You know, DLD impacts on people's ability to understand and use language. Um, and it is primarily diagnosed by speech pathologists, which I think, you know, creates this confusion about who sees what, when, where and why, which we're going to unpack um, throughout the day, uh, throughout the podcast today. Um, but I'd love to know, Tom, why should or would a child with DLD see a paediatrician? Because I often recommend that they do after we give the diagnosis, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I guess um, I see my role as a paediatrician in general um, is to look at the child as a whole. That's kind of my, my role. Um, and because there are many different causes of language delay in kids, for example, and um, I think it's kind of our role as the paediatrician to look through all those things Um Obviously, my expectations, my my expertise aren't specifically around speech and language and communication. I know a little bit about it and I know how to screen um, kids um, for it. Um, but my job as a doctor is to also look at all the medical issues that could potentially be contributing. Is there neurological problems? Are they having epilepsy, um, seizures? Are, do they have ENT or middle ear dis dysfunction? Are there any nutritional or genetic factors that might be at play? So they're all the kind of medical things, which is um, what I spent most of my training um, going through, but also kind of casting the net quite wide as well. So you know, often, you know, we look at function in, in kids. So in DLD, um, you know, you'll often have difficulties maybe with learning or behaviour or social and communication. So as the PED, I'm casting the net quite quite wide to look at are there any other factors at play that might be contributing to those social, behavioural learning problems, common conditions like ADHD and autism and doing assessments around them and managing them from a medical point of view. Um, so that's kind of the kind of what I think a pediatrician does. We cast the net really wide. We look at things from all different angles. And I guess our skill set is particularly around the medical aspect. So that's the part we hone in on as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's a great opportunity to, for me, in, in any diagnostic process, no matter what the diagnosis is, there's always going to be... Um, I guess, concerns or um, questions that families raise. And 
That's why I really like for my families to connect with a paediatrician because my skill set is on communication. And one of the really big differences um, compared to how we used to practice even five years ago when the um, consensus statement for developmental language disorder came in was for previous terms like specific language impairment, we had to rule everything out. So to diagnose specific language impairment, we have to kind of go, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. If there's nothing else left, we've excluded all, then it's SLI. And it took a very long time and often meant services weren't being accessed for people. So the big difference being that DLD or developmental language disorder isn't an exclusionary diagnosis, but for the clinicians listening in, it's really important that we include a caveat saying, and I put this in my reports, you know, if more information comes to light that better explains these language difficulties, then it would be described as a language disorder associated with that biomedical condition. Um, but knowing that actually, you know, la labels are powerful and enable access to supports, which I know we're going to be talking a little bit about later, but I'm really... Um, when we've spoken previously, Tom, about this, that was a bit that I loved about your perspective and I guess your role as well as a paediatrician. Yeah, I guess, you know, when we um, see kids and we refer them off, we're really asking for, for that second opinion. We're talking mm -hmm. about second opinions because we're looking, um, asking someone else for a, another uh, you know, information, more information, some advice about what they think is contributing as well. And, you know, the more points of data and information you have, the more likely you are to have the right result. Um, so I think that's where that kind of, um, yeah, having that another person have a look at them, get some more information. Um, information is power. So um, that that's kind of how I see, yeah, our role as a, as a paediatrician as well. And often having that right label can actually enable the right sorts of supports to be put in place, you know, uh, I think we get too bogged down in getting it absolutely perfect from the beginning. But, I, you know, sometimes it's about over a period of appointments or even professional opinions, we kind of go, oh, actually, this is what the condition is and this is the best This is the best way forward. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's why I like those kind of long-term relationships with kids. I, Me too. You know, I'm not going to say I get it right 100% of the time on the first appointment. Yeah. I'll probably get it right a lot of the time, I hope but I'm going to fine tune things and I'll, and if I make a mistake, I'll admit I make a mistake. I tell the families that um, when new information um, comes up, like you mentioned, um, but that's just being human, I think. Mm. Um, and I think if we can yeah, get, a, get as much information we, as we can, we're more likely to make the best decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So when going to see a pediatrician, often it might be the first time as well. Um, and uh, particularly if families are, are self-funding and, you know, they've only got mm -hmm. so much time, so much money, all those sorts of things. They want to <laughs> they want to really maximise on it. So what information can families and maybe their supporting speech pathologists provide that would help optimise their time um, with the paediatrician and actually best build a picture of a child with DLD when coming into the office? Coming yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. Well, I mean, if it's specific for kind of DLD, there are common things I guess you need to exclude. So I'd like to, the, the child to have had a hearing test mm. um, and, a, and a vision screen because you, you don't want to be the, the doctor who misses the child who can't hear and speak mm. and has a communication delay um, because that's a little bit embarrassing. Mm -hmm. um, so you want at least that as a minimum. Um, you would also, I guess, have the reports from the speech therapist I think most kids are usually at school, so very important to get some school-based information as well, 
even as simple as a report card will do. Um, NAPLAN results would probably be helpful um, because it gives you a little bit of information about the child's learning and function in one of their primary um, locations, which is at school. Mm -hmm. um, I love standardised kind of assessments and reports because I like kind of objective information. So mm -hmm. if the speech therapist has done, you know, a formal language assessment with herself or something like that, um, that's, that's also very um, helpful as well. So, and then I guess the first appointment is usually just a lot of discussion and talking um, and, get, and history gathering um, and making a decision as to whether anything else um, assessment-wise needs to be um, completed. But all those kind of basic informations, and I think that's in our information sheet. Um, there's a list of things that we ask to be sent through, mm -hmm. um, so you make the most of your time. And I think it's then that reality of that relationship building over time, you know, and um, knowing that little ones grow into big ones, <laughs> so that yeah. information changes, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, when we see the child for the first time, that's one point of information for an hour for that or an hour and a half for that child. Mm. Um, you don't you don't get a good feel about trajectory, about how fast they're improving or if they're stagnating with their development. That that can you can only tell that with time. Um, and so that's where that kind of long term relationship um, kind of is, is very helpful. I think uh, this sort of leads nicely then into my next question, which is around, I guess, who should you be discussing what with? And families will maybe have weekly speech pathology or, you know, fortnightly speech pathology. So they're regularly engaging with their speech pathologist and then they're simultaneously probably seeing their paediatrician you know, at least annually, sometimes more regularly, depending on what's going on and what there is being recommended. Um, families will often say, you know, what should they be discussing with the speech pathologist? What should be the, they be discussing with the peds? Perhaps maybe we could talk a little bit as a speech pathologist and paediatrician, what might be the differences in our roles and, and how, how we might work with the family together? Yeah, so yeah, so that's very um, good information because the speechy will be doing therapy, so seeing the child quite regularly. Um, so there'll be a lot of information that you will be able to pick up that me as a pediatrician who sees them every six to 12 months um, will, will be missing. Um, so that kind of feedback is really helpful as well when you're talking about what, what can the speech pathologist provide. Um, I guess the other... Um, things are I'm not a language or communication expert that's a speech pathologist's role so if we if you feel like the issue if the parent feels the issue is related to language development communication probably social skills even um, then you're probably better off asking the speech therapist um, so so that's kind of how I would demarcate it from the pediatrician's point of view. What are things that you kind of bring up with me? I guess as the kind of doctor, um, I guess we deal mainly with kind of medical issues. Um, so sleep issues, nutritional concerns, um, you know, other medication issues because uh, pediatricians mainly prescribing medication as well. Um, and I guess, as I was saying, our role overall is to kind of oversee and look at what other factors are involved. Um, so the question you might ask the Peter is, you know, do, do we need to get another allied health provider involved? Do they need to see an OT if there are some sensory issues, if there's kind of defiance or behaviour issues, maybe a psychologist. So 
that's kind of um, how I see the peds role. We kind of just overlook at all everything and kind of delegate to the specialists in each area. 100%. And there'll be information that you'll give to both, you know, and it might even be me saying, oh, don't forget when you go to the pediatrician, I'd like to, I'd put my, um, put my hand up and say, families are thinking of going to the pediatrician or are going to the pediatrician. Um, give me a heads up because I'd love to actually write a little letter, <laughs> something yeah. for you to take along or even an email, just something that gives you a nice summary um, of what, you know, what we've been working on, where things are at, and maybe anything that we've discussed that we want to make sure that um, comes through to the paediatrician, because yeah. it might be that the parent has said, oh, sleep has been horrendous. And I'd go, oh, I sympathise, sleep is really hard. Have you talked to your paediatrician about it? Um, yeah. Because that might be something that they have some recommendations around. Or, yeah. you know, I only work with children, um, so I know a lot about kids, but there are going to be things that I'm just going to stick to my speech, language and communication yeah. lane yeah. Um, because that's what my scope of practice says, you yeah. know, is best for my clients. Um, I think what's really helpful to know as well is um, that, uh, as a as a medical professional, you need a referral. You know, somebody needs to refer. You know, to within the um, health profession, between the you know, if you need to see an allergist or if you need to see an ENT, uh, you know, as a speech pathologist, I can say, oh, it'd be really interesting that we you know get this information. You'll need to speak to your GP yeah. or pediatrician about this. So yeah, you know, I can't yeah. refer you to the ENT. Um, I need I need my medical wonderful medical colleagues to do that. Yeah, and th and that's some in interesting points there. I guess one is um you know that communication is important, and certainly um from my perspective, I um when you're writing kind of letters and stuff, it's all those kind of red flag things that you uh, and your opinion. I know that yeah. um sometimes therapists aren't aren't I guess comfortable putting it out there to kind of go, mm. oh this child I think has autism. Can you please mm. have a look at it? Yeah. Um, they kind of tiptoe around the edges, but it's probably more helpful if if that's what you're thinking, that's what you tell me, um, yeah. because then it makes it easier. So I'm not trying to read between the lines. So um, I, I, I guess it depends on the pediatrician, but I never kind of, I never look down on anyone to kind of go, oh, why, why are they thinking that? I go, okay, yeah. well, I value your opinion. I'm going to, I'll take it seriously. I'll look into it. Yeah. Um, and if I don't agree, then fair enough. Um, so there's that point of view. And I think the other point you raise, which is important, is that um, GPs are in the picture as well as the mm. primary care and they play a really important role. And they're things that you can talk about sleep and nutrition as well. Mm. If you can't get in to see the pediatrician, mm -hmm. um, they have lots of training. A lot of them um, have interest in seeing kids um, as well and can give some good advice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh one one final point around i guess more allied health uh broadly is i think that our gpmp colleagues are fantastic at having that sort of overarching view of what options there are but if you know what option you need or want i think a lot of people don't realize you can actually within you know private sectors you can mm. actually self-refer self i mean essentially you're self-referring when you go to the optometrist don't you when you go yeah. i need my vision checked um, so you can actually self-refer to a speech pathologist and I'll put that in my reports and say such and such was self-referred by their, you know, mother or father or whomever's involved and saying, um, but I can't, you can't self-refer to the PED, <laughs> you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, uh, well, the the only thing you need a referral for is your Medicare rebate. So, True. so we will yeah. we will still take on families if yeah. they don't have Medicare, for example, yeah. um, or if they are happy to just pay the full out of pocket. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you can still, know. yep. So you can still definitely uh, do that. Um, but I guess you know, and we might talk about this later, but trying to access NDIS and things sometimes yeah. bypassing those barriers and yeah. just getting the assessment done so you can make your application um, yeah. is a lot faster and then gets you the access and intervention you need. Yeah. So sometimes people might come <clears throat> to you and say, I've got concerns around their that my child's communication. And that's when you're in a position to refer on to a speech pathologist, for example, Similarly, parents might self-refer to me as the speech pathologist in the first instance, and then I might say, actually, I think it's really important that you see a paediatrician. I think some parents feel like maybe there's a right and a wrong way of doing that, but I think it just depends on, I guess, the family and where they're at, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And because it's not a um, it's not a factory line, unfortunately, not everyone yeah. takes the same trajectory and pathway, um, which means that there's never never really a right or wrong answer. And the way you approach it. But I think as the first, if you're that first point of call um, health professional that that child sees, I think you do take on a bit of that responsibility to kind of direct the families in the right direction. Um, so that's why, you know, you'll, you'll know a little bit about kind of the medical aspects and the what a psychologist does and what an OT does as well. And so you can make some of those recommendations as to what they, they might need. Um, and so you're kind of that quarterback um, if mm. you're that first first point of call. Um, whoever does that long term is can be different, but mm. uh, yeah, as that first contact, I think that's an important role. And that's why I find that referral to the PED, if you know, and often I speak to a lot. I train a lot of clinicians, and what we often find is the kids who end up with the DLD diagnosis aren't the ones that maybe have been flagged with maybe some of the more um, maybe disabling characteristics and so therefore they've been picked up maybe earlier and so therefore they're already engaged with their P by the time they that you know the pediatrician has said oh have you thought about seeing a speech pathologist um Mm -hmm. you know uh, for some of these other conditions that I might work with you know each week but with DLD often it might be actually the the speech pathologist is the first person to provide a diagnosis and then that's for me that that sort of trigger to say do you have a pediatrician? Oh, you do. Mm. It might be really great that you connect with them. Oh, you don't have a pediatrician. Why don't we, um, you know, look mm. at some op- options there, you know, whether you can actually get in and see somebody just to check in more holistically about what their needs are. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now I think particularly for the kind of kids who have kind of milder DLD, they can mm. definitely fly under the radar and, and be missed and um, you might, you know, the, the kids who have quite severe language delay, they're pretty obvious mm. and will often see the GP who will then send off to the pediatrician and, or, and the speech therapist. Um, they're, they're a lot kind of more straightforward as the kind of milder kids, I think, that fly under the radar and might yeah. present late with learning problems um, and a little bit more undifferentiated. Um, yeah. that, that are missed yeah I'm writing one of those reports right now <laughs> are you <laughs> yes it's always interesting when they get through, all the way through to high school and you yeah think, hmm, how is this not being picked up yeah yeah because it can be hard sometimes I think it can be hard and some kids compensate really well yeah they do. um and and then fly under the radar so yeah yep. yeah absolutely yeah. so I love um I, I love working with my 
pediatrician colleagues because one of the things that you can do is you think about the supports and um, I, I guess I'd be keen to hear what possibilities there are for pediatricians to provide access to funding and support out in the community. One example might be through Medicare or NDIS. Um, families often report they don't feel confident asking for specific help. Um, so maybe you can give some ideas about what sorts of funding or supports might be out there. Yeah, I think the, um, I guess the good thing about NDIS now is that you don't need a pediatrician diagnosis in inverted commas. And I think that's really great, particularly for the young, for the younger kids, because um, waiting 12 months for a pediatrician to get a diagnosis, which is quite obvious, is um, kind of not helpful for anyone, really, um, particularly the, the child who's missing out on, on intervention. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, accessing supports and NDIS, in particular for the young kids, um, yeah, just realise that you don't necessarily need a paediatrician, okay, and don't delay intervention because of that. So that's one thing. Um, I guess for the um, older kids, uh, yeah, certainly they need a, a diagnosis uh, signed off in general, and that's probably the role of the paediatrician there. Uh, but I, I feel like I feel my role is an advocate for the child. I want to identify what I think is going to help this child turn out to be the best adult that they can. So I have that, I try to think about that trajectory early on and I can think about what do I need to do here to improve their outcomes. Um, and then I, I'm happy to write letters and things to support um, those things. So often it's around NDIS funding, it's around school adjustments and supports. It's about accessing things like Medicare and uh, filling in Centrelink forms a lot of the mm -hmm. time as well. So but that's kind of how I see, see my role. And I think that um, parents are really seeking those supports and often it's a, it's a complex system to navigate, right? And nobody's born, you know, nobody has their baby and thinks, oh, I know how to navigate Centrelink. I know how to navigate the NDIS. I know how to navigate school <laughs> systems. They're quite complex environments to work within. Um, I guess... What would be your advice if parents are seeking support when working with their paediatricians? A lot of them are saying to me, oh, I don't feel really confident to ask. You know, what, what would you say to them? Yeah, I guess um, a lot of peds are, I guess, um, we're problem-based, problem solvers. So we we get a, you know, the parents come to us with something that they are having trouble with. And I guess our job is to work through how to um, navigate that. So if it's something like, you know, for example, if a child comes with DLD and a learning disorder and they're having trouble at school, um, I guess our, my role, I think, is to identify, well, what are the barriers or what are the reasons why they're having trouble with their learning at school? Do they need any other assessments around? Do they need an educational assessment looking at specific learning disorders? Um, and then if they do or don't, you know, what are then the supports that they need um, to, to do that? So I think it requires the parent to be upfront and go. I'm concerned about the. Ch I'm concerned about my child's learning. Can you help me um, assess and address this and access um, supports? Um, and then our role then is to you know maybe clarify a diagnosis of a learning disorder or if it's just or DLD, and then um, write to the school and go. Look, he's got these are the issues here. These are the barriers to learning. Um, maybe you need to give him more teacher aid time. Maybe you need to make adjustments to his curriculum curriculum level. 
Maybe you need to use um, technology a little bit better. Maybe you need to give them more time to complete tasks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just to make those kind of recommendations. But I think as long as the parents are up front with your pediatrician, they're not going to say no to helping the child. And we've already, I think we've already probably answered my next sort of follow-up question to that is if, if parents do have concerns, you know, is it okay to go and get a second opinion? Oh, yeah. As I was saying before, I, I think um, the more opinions, the better, I guess. Um, it's just an extra data point of information. And the more, I guess, data points you have, the more likely you are to understand what's going on and, and make good suggestions. So, as I said, I don't, I'd never go, get offended if um, someone wants to see someone else. And I often encourage parents to if, if they're stagnating um, because, uh, yeah, I'm not going to pretend to say that I know the answer to every single question that a family has asked me. There are some things that I don't know and I need to um, find that information somewhere. And sometimes a second opinion is how you do that. So I'm curious at this point, we've obviously had um, lots of different terms to describe kids with language difficulties. Um, currently, um, we've just had, so we've had the Catalyze Consortium papers published in 2017. ICD-11 has come out this year saying developmental language disorder. The DSM-5 still uses the term language disorder as an exclusionary criteria. You know, where where do you think most uh, have most people, sorry, have most pediatricians heard of DLD, particularly with this sort of rebranding and changing of terminology? Where do you think we're kind of at with that? Yeah, I think it's kind of a, a new, newish term. Obviously, it's kind of uh, there's that progression that you've kind of described um, over time. And with um, the people who've been around for a little bit longer, probably still have speech and language um, yeah. impairment in their in their mind, which is kind of the, the old older term. Um, so, but I think awareness is slowly improving. Obviously, we've run an in-service for most of our peds recently, um, just to kind of upskill. And this is part of our continuing professional development. So I guess from my point of view, each year I, I look at kind of what area do I think I need to upskill in or learn more about and find a conference to kind of uh, learn about that or uh, find some talks or papers to kind of read about it. So I think the awareness is probably slow, slow to mm -hmm. pick up, but but we'll slowly get there. It's kind of like when the DSM-4 went to the DSM-5 for autism. There were those yeah. little changes. Um, and still some people use the term Asperger's, which mm. um, is, you know, eight to nine years old now. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, yeah, a little bit of a pick up with podcasts and things like like what you're doing. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's a great follow-up then is, is there anything that the DLD community could be doing to help raise awareness specifically with our, our pediatrician colleagues? You're all really busy. You know, we don't want to take up too much time, but is there anything from your perspective we could be doing to support that? Yeah. Well, I think in your regular correspondence with us, like you can put little bits of information, we read your reports and um, yeah, once if I think I don't know if I don't really talk for all the pediatricians, but if there's a term mm -hmm. I don't understand, I go look it up yeah. um, in, in a report because as I said, I don't know everything. So I just um, um, I want to keep learning and getting better at what I do. Um, so those kind of reports and things, um, you know, you mentioned your podcast, I mean, DLD Awareness Day um, recently, mm -hmm. yeah. um, all those things that kind of draw attention. Um, and I think the interesting, the thing for me is that um, 
uh, kind of it's it it is it can be a very mild condition. So mm -hmm. and I think um, it's often missed missed a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And so certainly with the education I've had um, more recently, it's in the back of my mind now. And you start picking up more. And once you start picking up more patients with it, um, those patients stick in your mind. So, um, and that's where I guess having those reports that you write to us using those the, the most recent terms, that then sticks in our mind. And yeah, and it's good for the next child who comes along who might have DLD because it's in our mind. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. So, in your opinion, and I know you can't speak for the whole medical community, but yeah. I, what do you hope to see in the future for DLD within sort of the paediatrician medical space? You know, where can we go from here? Yeah, I think um, we have conferences, for example. So having a speech therapist maybe just talking and upskilling um, would be an, an important thing to kind of raise raise awareness. Um and particularly because I guess, yeah, outcomes are not quite as good if you're not treated and managed um, kind, mm -hmm. kind of well um, from, the very, from the very beginning as, um, as well. So I think, um, yeah, some of those kind of points really um, useful, just kind of raising awareness and um, hopefully getting earlier intervention for those kids because it's in the forefront of our minds when we see kids. Yeah, and it, I think even that idea that it's a possibility I went through not with a with a pediatrician, but with a, a psychologist um, last year. The idea of you know doing a, a joint assessment, and I got to the end, and I said, "They said I think that this young person has autism." And I said, "Oh, what makes you think that they've got autism?" And I said, "Oh, well, I my perspective would be that they've got a developmental language disorder, and what you've described is to do with their communication." communication. And yeah. they said, "Oh, what's that?" And so, mm -hmm. unless it's something that you even consider as a possibility yep. um you know it's it's yep. not going to be something that comes up and is therefore you know diagnosed yep. and supported so i'm hoping yep. within our you know allied health medical worlds as the awareness increases it might even just be you know consider that language might be a possibility that dld might be that label yeah that's what i mean by being in your at least in your mind and you're thinking about it when mm. we're we're casting that really broad net at the beginning and looking at all the factors affecting it um, I would hope that language disorder is one thing that definitely, you know, DLD is one thing that pops through our mind. Yep. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. So, Tom, as we're drawing to a close, I've got one more question for you. Um, at the DLD project, we are trying to focus on self-care and finding time to breathe in our busy day. What sorts of things do you do to look after yourself? Um yeah, good question. I'm I'm a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm working all the time. So the the activities I find um, that I need to do to keep me from working usually involve something that I can't be in front of a computer in. So, <laughs> um, so I'm a runner. So uh... I go running a few times a week. So I can yeah. listen to podcasts. I can listen to music. But it's my own time. The kids can't keep up with me um, <laughs> with the running. Uh, so, you know, it's my whatever, 30, 60 minutes a couple of times a week. To, yeah. yeah, to just unwind and exercise is very important, as I tell all my kids. Yeah, absolutely. We want our kids to exercise, so that's good. Good modelling. Um, so, Tom, just to recap, what are some of the key points you want listeners to take away from our chat today when thinking about mm. the work that paediatricians do in this space? Yeah, um, I guess the, yeah, the, the important things I would say are that um, we're generally 
in it for your child. We're in it to get the best outcome for your child. I think you should try to find a pediatrician who you engage well with and you feel comfortable with and confident in. Um, I think you can be confident that most pediatricians have good clinical skills and good knowledge because we spend a lot of time training um, to learn those skills. Um, but it's sometimes it's the interpersonal skills um, that are more important. Uh, but in the end, we want the best outcome for your child. So um, that's what we're in it for. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And I think that um, in my mind, you know, thinking about particularly our families and, and teachers and health professionals that are listening in today, that it's actually about, again, the DLD community is about coming together and supporting people. And of course, our, mm. you know, pediatrician colleagues are such an important part of that. So I'm so thankful that you've joined us today. I've been wanting to have a pediatrician on the podcast since we started nearly, what, two and a bit years ago. Um, so this is a, a great achievement. And I think it'll be something that people will take a lot away from. So thank you so much for your time. It is so immensely appreciated. No problems. Uh, thanks very much, Sean, and helping to raise awareness. Really appreciate that. And I'm happy to come on, on again another time. Thank you to Dr. Tommy Tran for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast today. Wow, what an episode. I wanted to draw attention to his quote, pediatricians who have been around longer probably still have speech and language impairment in their mind, but I think awareness is slowly improving. Now, that is great, but of course we don't want slowly, we want quick improvement. So now it is the perfect time to send our brand new evidence brief, our developmental language sort of evidence brief to every pediatrician you know to ensure that that DLD awareness is growing at the rapid rate we want to see. If you are a pediatrician listening uh, to today's podcast, welcome and thank you. You might be wondering how you can grow your knowledge in the DLD space. We actually held an International Developmental Language Disorder Research Conference again this year with 40 plus presentations of the latest uh, research in DLD. You can access it on demand, the recordings, right now at our website, thedldproject.com. So that's a great option for you. Thank you to everyone for your support in 2022. We have achieved so much, but there is still so much more to do. We are looking forward to working with you again next year. Stay safe and well over the festive period. Have a wonderful time with those dear to you. And we can't wait to collaborate with you again in 2023.